Hello all, welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We are back after the holiday weekend. I'm Tracy Siska, I'm your host and also the Executive Director of Chicago Justice Project. You can find more info about what we do on transparency and accountability at chicagojustice.org. There's plenty of our research there you can get access to. Most recently, published a couple weeks ago, two pieces, one on Chicago Police Superintendent, current Superintendent David Brown, about a hidden suspension that he got back in his early years on the job for lying during an internal misconduct investigation. He didn't lie once, he lied multiple times, he kept appealing it. He failed a um, he failed the lie detector test and kept appealing it and appealing it. And no, he had to serve it. 15 day suspension probably should have been just been terminated. Things that have been different nowadays, I think. Um, the accountability system was completely broken back then. Um, so that's one piece about David Brown's suspension. And the second piece is who knew about his suspension. The police board was involved in vetting him. The mayor had conversations with him before he was even on the short list um, to be superintendent. Who knew? They refused to answer questions. So check out both those pieces on our website. There's also about John Cotton's RF and the FOP. There's uh, info on the Freedom of Information Act, a piece that was um, by Colin that was great, and there's a couple more by Lauren up on there. So please go to chicagojustice.org and check out all our research. Tonight at 8 o'clock Central, I am putting the link in the chat. You can get it at any of the platforms. It um, The link is to our CJP Nation meeting tonight at eight or 7 o'clock Central. This meeting's um, basically a mixture between volunteers and interns for the Chicago Justice Project. This is where both those groups come together and jointly work on crowdsource research projects, social media activism, public policy advocacy for us. And also a uh, few do fundraising for us. So if you want to get involved in any of that, tonight at 7 p.m., there's the Zoom meeting. You can check it out. Um, by all means, get involved. All of that research, just about all of that research that we published this summer has come from the nation. It started there. It's all been produced and written by interns and volunteers. So by all means, please get involved. We're going to go on to our one and only segment today. It was an interview with uh, Deborah Witzberg, who's the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General. She has been on the show many times now in the last 15 or so months we've been doing it. In this interview, um, we canned it earlier today, so it's a video. It runs around 21 minutes or so, and then we'll come back and I'll talk about it a little bit. This report is on ShotSpotter. We talk about a report they just published in the last few weeks on ShotSpotter. And not so much do they, they don't so much as make any recommend policy recommendations related to ShotSpotter, but they are doing it, they are providing data analysis that should um, help move the conversation about whether we need ShotSpotter in Chicago. Um, so without digging too much into the interview, I want to play it. Um, I'm going to show the video, and then after that, I will be back um, to talk about it. Deborah Witzberg, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. 
All right, everyone, we're going to talk about an evaluation, a report that Inspector General's office did on ShotSpotter, and we're going to get to what that means, but let me just give you a little bit of history. ShotSpotter is a technology that identifies gunshots and supposedly uh Let's police know about them more quickly than 911 calls and sends police resources to the scene more quickly. This was adopted in Chicago in early 2000s for a period of time. And I even had sources then telling me how useless it was. And at some point, the CPD dropped it. And then Superintendent McCarthy brought it back. Um, we know all about the good decisions he made in the department because they've been trying to undo them since he left. But one of the ones that they did not undo was ShotSpotter. And in fact, in 2018, the CPD signed a $33 million contract with ShotSpotter to deploy them. Uh, well, we'll get to where it's deployed, but it's deployed in many communities throughout the city. So Deborah, can you give us a uh, layman's term? What does ShotSpotter do? How does it work? Sure. So um, ShotSpotter, the ShotSpotter technology is an acoustic sensor that is mounted in a fixed location on a telephone pole, basically. Um, and it is intended to detect the sound of gunfire. And it that the sound of gunfire is identified by the ShotSpotter technology sort of in two ways at a high level. There's an algorithm which digitally interprets the sound profile. There are also humans employed by ShotSpotter in a control center who literally are listening to the sounds that are coming in, like in their headphones. And with a combination of those two inputs, um, ShotSpotter makes a determination of whether a noise that it has detected is in fact the sound of a gunshot. And the system sends an alert to the police department, to, to any client police department. There are many across the country. CPD is reportedly ShotSpotter's largest, largest client, but it's used by over 100 police departments across the country. The ShotSpotter sends information to the user police department that there has been an alert, that there has been what is believed to be a gunshot detected and information about its location, which then, as you, as you mentioned, permits the police department theoretically to respond to that location. Okay, so we've heard a lot of criticism from communities about where this technology is deployed and where it is not. So can you give a, our audience an idea of where is this technology deployed? I have a feeling it's not Lincoln Park. Well, so... <laughs> There has indeed been a lot of concern about, you know, ShotSpotter specifically, and I think it's important to, to look at this in a little bit of a broader context as well, in terms of concerns about kind of surveillance technologies and, and where and how they're deployed, right? So this is, this is also part of a larger conversation. Um, the city does not make public where specifically sensors are located, but, but the city does provide a list of police districts where um, where it says it has shot spotters. And I'm sorry, I'm just looking down uh, at my notes here so I get mm -hmm. the list of districts correct. But the city reports that there are shot spotter sensors installed in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, 10th, 11th, 15th, and 25th districts across Chicago. It is perhaps worth noting in terms of the geography that. Um, and, and, you know, we, we have sort of a heat map in our report showing. Um, distribution of some of these alerts, nearly a quarter of all of the shot spotter alerts in the city come from the fourth and fifth, um, the fourth and fifth districts, both the, the, the two furthest south districts in the city. Right. And the reality is this technology is, is, I am assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, 
the, the deployment of this technology correlates with districts that have that experience the most gun violence. Is that fair to is that fair to say? Um, I'm not sure. Aha. Uh -huh. sure. I, I think um, you know uh, there there's a, there would be a question of how we would measure gun violence. Right, there's a little bit of a snake eating its tail question there. How do we know how much gun violence there is? Like, how are we measuring that? Um, That's an interesting point you brought up because I've had this argument with reporters all the time, and I keep meaning to do a, an issue brief or a fact sheet about it. What is actually, you know, the the reporters now write down every time they hear a, a shots thing on the on the scanner, every time. What is exactly is an official? shooting what counts as it because 10 people can call and i know i've done ride-alongs and stuff and cops zoom there and there's nobody there and they have no they don't recover evidence which we'll talk about they don't have any evidence of there being shots fired well is that a verified shooting because four different people heard it and thought it was a gunshot does that count um i think that that whole subject matter has been um passed over conveniently especially by the media I think I think there are there are real data challenges there. I I agree. And, and you know the reason I say it's sort of a snake eating its tail is if, if we're using ShotSpotter alerts as indications of the prevalence of gunfire in a location, and that has to do with one of our findings, and, and maybe we'll get there. Sort of this generalized impression of the frequency of alerts. But if one of the inputs we're using to kind of develop our sense of where there are a lot of gunshots is ShotSpotter, then right th then we're going to think there's more gunfire in places where we put ShotSpotter sensors. Correct. It's the same thing when you put more officers in a place. Um, there's no doubt that there are um, there are neighborhoods and there are zip codes and there are police districts that experience more crime or more street violence, let's say, in general than others. That's not a there's not really much of a doubt. But the more you flood those places with cops, the more crime incidents that tend to rise. Well, that's kind of counterintuitive. Well, part of that is the cops need to do things. Like you're a worker for a, on a job, you have to produce, right? So yeah, I, 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 that's, I think that is a really important consideration. I would say, um, you know, I, I think one way to think about this would be by tier, by district tier. So CPD has assigned its district to different tiers, roughly on the basis of, of crime rates. Um, that would be one anchor point. We didn't do that analysis. We did not look at the allocation of shot spotter sensors in this report, in part because, um, you know, really what we're trying, what we were trying to get at with this analysis was the question of sort of big picture operational value of the use of this technology. Um, you know, how val how useful is this to the to the police department for law enforcement purposes um, when it gets an alert? And so we, you know, there's certainly questions we didn't answer here. And one of them has to do with decisions about where, where sensors are located. Yeah, and that, that by itself could be a separate report because it gets very complicated in understanding the crime incident data and what, what is behind it. And, and to one extent or another, what political purposes it serves. I know I do the same thing with gangs. Gang involved um, really gets me, unnerves me whenever you, when the media just says gang, please say gang involved crime, gang involved gang, gang involved crime. Um, my perfect example is Douglas Park in North Lawndale. If you go to the southwestern corner, there's million dollar townhouses when they thought the Olympics were coming there behind a wall. Well, if there's crime there, right in front of there, 
the police don't want to say it's gang involved because those people with the million dollar townhouses are like, hey, you're, you got to do something about gangs. So suddenly it's an interpersonal crime. But it's on the other side of Douglas Park, it's okay to be gang involved. Um, and to me, gang involved is all about people who should not care whether they get hurt. But that's a whole nother story. We can go down there. What data did you use for this report? And let us know a little bit about your methodology about how you did this. Sure. We sort of did two categories of things. The first had to do with um, looking at dispatches attached to ShotSpotter alerts. So this is a little bit oversimplified, but at a high level, the way this works is that, as we talked about, the ShotSpotter system generates an alert. That information goes to the police department. There is an event number, which is sort of a unique identifier for an incident attached to it. And then a police response is dispatched to that location under that event number. When an event, when the police are finished with their kind of immediate response to a dispatch like that, there is a disposition code that gets attached to that event number, which is just as a data collection mechanism, a way to identify sort of the outcome of that, of that immediate response. So we looked at the disposition codes for over 50,000 shot spotter alerts over our period of analysis, which was about 18 months. And um, those the, the disposition codes are, are come in a, a couple of uh, a handful of categories. There are criminal disposition codes, which are broken down by relevant criminal offense. There are non-criminal disposition codes, and then there are miscellaneous disposition codes. And so, for this entire universe of about fifty thousand shot spotter alerts, we looked at the frequency with which the disposition code for that response indicates a gun-related crime. So that those would be situations in which, you know, when they go to code out a response to a shot spotter alert, the police are saying this response was relevant to a gun crime. Um, and we found that 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 is true in about 9% of cases. So in about 9% of shot spotter alerts, you can look at the disposition codes in the data and see an indication that the police coded that response as, rel as related to a gun crime. That's sort of one, one category that we did. Of, of analysis. The second had to do with investigatory stop reports. So investigatory stops are brief detentions, which the police are permitted to do um, given reasonable articulable suspicion that a crime has been committed. So this is something, you know, this is a, a sort of stop um, of, a, of a member of the, of the public. The police can do, they don't have to have enough information to arrest anybody. They just, they have to have, as I say, reasonable articulable suspicion. And when they conduct an investigatory stop, they are supposed to report that on what is logically called an investigatory stop report. Um, and we looked at, at that universe as well. Investigatory stop reports are also attached to event numbers, like we talked about those unique mm -hmm. identifiers for a response. And so we looked at the question of how frequently by matching event numbers, we could tie an investigatory stop to a shot spotter alert. And that exercise is, is really, um, you know, in conducting an investigatory stop is one of the sort of investigatory proceeds which might lead the police to be able to say like, yes, this response was related to a gun crime. We talked to somebody, you know, there was reasonable articulable suspicion that a gun crime had been committed. Um, it's, it's one of the kind of investigative outcomes that might arise from a shot spotter alert. And we found that only rarely um, were, were we able to do that matching, were we able to match a specific investigative uh, investigatory stop to, um, 
to a specific shot spotter alert. The other piece of kind of methodology associated with investigatory stop reports is the one that we referred to, where um, in addition to investigatory stop reports, which we could link to a shot spotter alert by event number, we also did kind of text analysis. Um, investigatory stop reports have a narrative portion where the CPD members write in, you know, in account of what happened to include their justification for the stop, the facts which led to the reasonable articulable suspicion that a crime had been committed, you know, which would permit that, that Fourth Amendment intrusion. Um, and in doing so, we found indications that the very presence of the shot spotter technology is changing police behavior, even when the police are not responding to a specific shot spotter alert. So what that means is that, you know, we saw instances in those narratives where in, in, in laying out their basis for a stop, CPD members were referring to the, a sort of generalized impression that they were in an area with a high prevalence of shot spotter alerts. So not that they were responding to a specific alert, but just simply that they were in an area where they have the sense there are a lot of alerts. Um, and so, as I say, you know, we identified that as evidence that this technology is really changing police behavior around when and, and why they stop people. Right, and that gets very, this whole discussion around shot spotter has been very scary to me because um, as you cover in your report, there's been at least two empirical studies, one in St. Louis, one in Hartford, Connecticut, and neither one of those came up with significant results in um, deterring or reducing crime or in, even gun violence, which um, if, if it's not reducing it, I don't know why we have it. Uh, one of the interesting things that I, um, I keep going back to, we have a one point, nearly $1.7 billion police department. And for some reason, when they want to make an argument, they can't ever make it with data, right? So in the, in the response to the MacArthur justice story on shot, uh, study on shot spotter, and then I think Vice News or The Intercept, maybe Jamie Calvin did something on there. The superintendent said, well, you know, shot spotters allows us at times to get to the victim quicker. And I was like, okay, but I have a feeling you're not capturing that data. And the, the fact to me that, that they defaulted to that, that that was his default response as a justification for having shot spotter, that was a red flag to me that there's, there's a problem because they don't have data that's showing it's actually helping their policing. So, you know, I, I think um, we do not, we don't make any recommendations in this report. This is, a, this is a descriptive data product. And we certainly don't reach a finding that there is no value to shot spotter. What, what we're really aiming for for here is to encourage and equip the city and the department to do a kind of well-informed cost-benefit analysis of this technology, um, where we look at its benefits, whatever they may be, including, including some of those articulated by the superintendent, where we weigh those against its costs and its risks, both dollar costs, right, as you said in the original contract, $33 million over three years, um, as well as sort of community concerns that we talked about, safety risks to members, et cetera. Um, you know, when decisions are being made about continued investment in a tool like ShotSpotter, you know, that there's a cost benefit analysis that should be done and there should be a demonstrable operational value. Right, that you can articulate and prove. So 
9%. So you all looked at around 50,000 alerts over 18 months, about. Um, what should people believe was the cause for the other 90% of those alerts? Are they, were they categorized as gunshots and then there was no, um, there was no gun evidence of a gun crime produced or were those um, fireworks? How, how does that, because that's a huge number that we don't seem to know what those were. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that this sort of gets at the difference between technological accuracy and operational value. Speaking from our, the four corners of our analysis, it's entirely possible that every one of those 50,000 alerts correctly identified the sound of gunfire. The question we are getting at is whether that is valuable to the police department, mm -hmm. whether that enables the police department to collect any evidence which allows them to combat violent crime, right? That's sort of what we're getting at. Um, so, you know, how we should understand the remaining 90 some odd percent of those alerts, I, I think it, it is probably best to assume that we don't, we don't know. We don't have any information other than the alert itself. And again, we don't, we simply don't speak to the question of technological mm -hmm. accuracy. And so are some of those fireworks? Maybe some of those cars backfiring? Maybe. Um, I do think it's important to note that um, when you see, when ShotSpotter speaks publicly about its effectiveness, it, it is speak, it, it's talking about technological accuracy. So you see sort of discussion of, of accuracy rates in the high 90s and the high 90 percentages. <laughs> and, and I just, I think it's important to say that that's a discussion of, of, that's an assertion, I should say, of technological accuracy, not a question we speak to in this analysis. Right, and it's something um, one would think, um, for those who don't know, the city, the police department, if I got the chronology right, um, the, the contract with ShotSpotter didn't, to, original contract didn't expire till last month, and uh, August of 2021, and the CPD asked for the, a renewal of the contract or an extension in December of 20, and that did get extended two more years. One would think that we, we would, the two of us would not have to be here asking about whether or not this technology actually you should not have had to do your study right if they're going to sign a contract for 33 million dollars one could argue there is a reason to try it although they already tried it and, and threw it out so i'm not sure why they tried it again but if you're going to try it one more time and you're going to do 33 million dollars on it then they ought to have an evaluation of it done internally to prove that um, not only is it worth the money but it helps us um in furthering our mission to serve the people and reduce violence and respond quicker and help people on the scene more uh, quickly. You would think that would be done other than what I have a feeling happened because I know internally how the CPD works and I know how bad their data generally is that they just got the feeling it was helping and they just tossed another 20 some million dollars at the problem because the fact that they can't produce a study that says we know this helped us and these are the ways it helped us definitively and we can prove it Right. We shouldn't have to be here guessing about whether or not it helped. So, you know, I think for transparency and accountability purposes, um, it would be pref you would hope that exactly as you say, the decision to continue to invest in a technology 
would be based on a demonstrable operational benefit. Um, if in fact CPD's decision to extend this contract, and, and you're, you have the timeline right, it, it was set to expire a couple of weeks ago in the middle of August, um, months in advance of its expiration, the city renewed the contract for an additional two years at, a, at, a, at an increased cost of 5%. Um, you know, you, you would prefer that that decision had been made, as I say, on the basis of, of a demonstrable operational benefit. If in fact it was, and, and, and perhaps it was, it, I think it would be helpful to have the analysis that led the department to that decision be part of the public conversation. Yes, analysis from the department. Oh, you're kidding me. They don't do analyses. Um, Deborah, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll have you on the show in the near future. We'll see what the future holds at the Office of Inspector General, but thank you for all your good work. Um, I helped create the office and these are the reports that I was really hoping would get done. Thank you very much. Take it easy. Okay, we're back. So I am going to respond before I talk about the interview. I'm going to respond to a couple questions that we've got coming over through social media, from Facebook and Twitch, I believe. Um, so let me guess, Austin is the major spot where it's deployed. It's not the major spot, but it's one of them. So you heard um, Deborah mention the 25th district, that's Austin. So it is definitely one of them. Um, the next question, Patrick McDonough, if I'm pronouncing that right, what happened to Franz Spielman and the Chicago Sun-Times? Do they work for Lori now? Um, I'm going to say no. And let me just say that um, I think the media, for the most part, definitely treated Lori Lightfoot differently than they've treated, um, and they treated Romer daily. Um I think it's a bad thing if they're doing it because she's black and female and gay. If this is how they're going to do it for all mayors from now on, I mean, they should have done it for Raman Daly, but if this is how it's going to be for no matter what the race, gender, or sexuality um, of the people are, then that would be fine. Um, but I, I question that. They happen to like white males in authority and happen to um, not really challenge them. So that's... Is it Big Brothers with headphones? To some degree it is. Um, but I think it's a little worse than that, to be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen. Well, let's go a couple things. As was mentioned in the interview, St. Louis and Hartford, Connecticut had studies done, no meaningful changes in gun violence or arrests. Then why do we have it? When... Superintendent Brown got questioned about this after MacArthur did their study, and there was a piece by, I think, Jamie Kelvin in The Intercept about ShotSpotter and how bad it is in Chicago. And honestly, neither one of those pieces, neither the MacArthur study or the piece by Jamie Kelvin that I think was super convincing about it. My dog wants to get into the conversation here. Um, neither one of those was good, but Brown said, well, we get the people quicker on the scene. That kind of anecdotal stuff doesn't make a difference. And this is the problem with this $1.7 billion police department. They complain about things or they talk about things they need or things they're doing, and they don't have data to back any of the crap up, right? They don't have data. This is the same BS with bond reform. Bond reform's the problem. Well, 
Fox and the judge put out data and Evans put out data. It's their, uh, well, we know here this one incident and this one incident here and this one incident here. See, we, we know. No, you don't know. You have a $1.7 billion budget. You ought to have the data to prove it. You ought to have the studies to prove it. If you don't, shut up. That should be a dismissible offense. Brown should be out on his butt just for not having the studies. The reality is they can't really challenge bond reform on the data because it's not doing it what they say they're doing, and they know it. Okay, real quickly, let's go back to some really bad things about ShotSpotter, and that is Vice. I think it's Vice News did a report on it, and it tracked some civil suits involving ShotSpotter, and it basically caught some testimony from ShotSpotter officials that they have been caught on a number of occasions changing the classification of sounds. So there have been times when ShotSpotter would say it's not a, sh a gunshot and then they get called later by the cops, please change it, we need it to be gunshot and all of a sudden it becomes a gunshot. It's reclassified again. Or... How many shots did you hear? No, you didn't hear one. You heard multiple because that's what we needed to say, and they change it. All of that is a massive problem. That combined with St. Louis and Hartford studies saying it had no, uh, as, as um, Deborah would put it, no demonstrable operational benefit. Didn't reduce crime or violence, didn't reduce gun violence, didn't increase arrests. Well, that's a huge issue. You put that all with the fact that in reality, ShotSpotter is way too many false positives. It's open as vice is proven to manipulation by police departments and by their own staff. And cities like Chicago can't prove, uh, can't provide a, dem a demonstrable operational benefit. Why the hell did we renew this contract? And this is one of the problems with the media. Why the hell aren't they holding the feet of Lori Lightfoot and David Brown to the fire and get them to explain on the record, on video, why they rushed to renew that contract when they couldn't provide a demonstrative operational benefit? Right? But this stuff makes the news for a day or two and then it goes away and there's no follow-up. Which, just like our Brown lying about this, um, never telling anyone about the suspension in the city, Lightfoot and, and the police board never telling us, it made one hit, NBC, one hit, Charlie Wojciechowski. It got on BEZ something because Chip Mitchell tweeted about it. And Lightfoot had to comment on the record on BEZ, but I can't find the audio for it. Otherwise, that's it. It's a blip, and the next day it's gone. This is how these things go, and this is the media. It's a problem with the media coverage of gun, and, gun violence in Chicago. And it applies to everything responsive, how the police department responds, how the public responds, how the public officials respond. It's all the same. It gets all wrapped up into these horrible, horrible media practices, which is why Brown continues to lie. He's very much like Trump, continues to lie about bond reform. Um, we've got video of it. We'll be playing the next couple of weeks, all his times. He's lied about it. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, real quick, keep your eye on our website. We have a bunch of research um, Hard-hitting research coming down the pipe in the next several weeks. And um, we'll probably be piece in, uh, publishing one piece every three or four weeks. And we're probably going to be through the end of the year easily. Uh, we got some great research coming from the nation. Once again, check the chats and whatever platform you're watching us. Grab that Zoom link. See you at 7 p.m. Central if you want to get involved. All different kinds of ways. So come tonight and find out how. Otherwise, go to our website at chicagojustice.org and...
read our recent published or all the, the research we published all summer. Thank you all. I'll see you again at 530 Central on Friday. Have a great night. Oh,